Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Good morning. Well, I want to start off by sharing some stories about some people that I've had the opportunity to lead to Christ. I'm not going to mention their names. I'm not doing this for uh, boasting in me, but I'm doing this in boasting in Christ. I remember there was a guy who was in Texas at a church on staff as the worship pastor, and I was trying to develop and build a band, and someone told him, you got to go listen to the sax player. He's, he plays down at this club down in downtown Houston. I go, is he a Christian? He goes, I don't know, but you got to hear this guy. So I went down there and um, heard him. Amazing. Singer, sax player. So afterwards, I go, hey, why don't you come play at our church? He goes, church? I don't play at churches. I go, yeah, just come on down. Long story short, um, he ended up giving his life to the Lord, and he's now a pastor. Another guy who was, I would say, spiritually out to lunch in a respectful way. Uh, he was totally into the universalism kind of, it was up in Monterey. And, you know, everything is God, you know, the trees. And so I shared with him my testimony one night after rehearsal. I stayed up past 11 o'clock at night, and I was sharing my testimony in the church where we rehearsed. And I shared my heart, and I poured out my soul. And he looks at me and goes, man, that's great for you, brother. I go, oh, okay, well. Well, anyways... He ended up getting saved and was baptized and uh, got married to a Christian woman, and he's still serving the Lord, playing guitar. I share these stories to encourage you, but I also share them to challenge you. Paul said, To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. Why? That by all means, what does he say? I might save some. Now, is Paul saying that he's the Savior? No. He's saying, I'm an instrument that God uses for people to get saved. It's kind of like the piano doesn't play itself. It needs someone to play the piano. We don't save people. We're the instrument that God uses to save people. And we should say, Lord, use me as your instrument. Who's the last person that you brought to Christ as an instrument of the Lord that got saved? Who is that? Can you think of anybody? If you can't answer that question, something's not right. And I mean that in a respectful way, though. But if you're a Christian and you can't think of any person recently that you've helped and you shared the gospel that they came to Christ, do better. This is an exhortation for all of us. And that's what the theme of the sermon is today about. started a sermon last week called 2020 Vision, and I shared this passage, where there's no vision, the people perish. Well, I can say this, where there's no evangelism, the people perish. So today we're going to talk about part two, being saved. When someone comes to Christ, they first have to enter the gate. Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That's where it begins, salvation then your next step is to be baptized in the water. That's your profession of faith. 
And that's historically how the church has done it. The next step is a very important step. You need to become a partner or a member of a local church. If you're not a partner or a member of a local church, then you're not growing and becoming all that God wants you to be. There's no silo, lone ranger Christians. We're all part of the family of God. So what we have is we have these commitments. And the first commitment is to Jesus Christ and to each other. Being saved, you're committing yourself to Jesus Christ to be a follower of Christ, but you also need to commit yourself to one another, the one another's in the church. As today, as we talk about the harvest is plenty, the workers are few, we need more workers, more partners to come alongside us. Uh, We're growing. We need help. We need people to help us grow. Matthew 9, he said to his disciples, Jesus, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Here's the thing. When he's talking about a harvest, he's talking about the harvest of souls, right? He's not talking about wheat. He's using that as an example. The problem is not that the church doesn't have enough people. If God is sovereign, then he knows exactly who at exactly what time of their life and season are supposed to be a part of a certain church. Nobody's here by accident. That doesn't happen. In fact, the Bible says that God appoints where you live, and then where he appoints where you live, he wants you to get involved in the local church to reach souls for Christ. So it's never a problem that the church doesn't have enough people. The problem is not also that the church doesn't have enough money, because, again, if God is sovereign then he knows exactly what we need when we need it. I want to read a little passage from this book. It's an interesting book. It was given to me a few weeks ago. It's called Inheritolatry. He's using idolatry with the money that Christians have. And this is amazing. He says that there's $5 trillion currently in the hands of, of this generation of Christians. Five trillion dollars. That's a lot of money. In fact, he says it's more than enough to complete the Great Commission multiple times. So here's what he says. We are living in a truly unique time. As Americans prepare for an unprecedented transfer of wealth to the next generation, a good portion of which is in the hands of evangelical Christians, Charitable giving has taken an interesting turn. Even as charitable giving in general is increasing in the United States, giving to the church and faith-based ministries continues to decline. This book was written just a couple years ago. Charitable giving among the general population is at record levels, yet many evangelical churches and parachurch ministries struggle to raise the support needed to continue their work. Stated another way, while evangelical wealth rapidly rises to record levels, generosity among evangelicals continue to wane. So it's never about not having enough. It's always about, is that enough being invested into the harvest field? Is that enough being invested into the kingdom of God through the local church? Last week, I talked about the importance of the church, and we looked at Acts chapter 4, We talked about the different 
values and characteristics of a growing church. And remember, the big one was unity, which involves the unity of mind and one heart and one soul to glorify Jesus in everything we do, but to also reach people. I don't know about you, but when I read the gospel accounts, the only time I see Jesus not moving is when he's praying or he's ministering to someone. But most of the time, he's traveling from place to place. So that's why when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he's not just pulling that out of his hat. He actually did that. And he is our example. And we all need to be working in the kingdom of God, in the harvest field, so that our church and God's kingdom can grow. As we look at this passage today, Matthew 9, we're going to go through it. We're going to pull out some different things that are required for workers in the harvest field, okay? Number one, a harvest, and when I say harvest, a spiritual harvest requires workers who aren't afraid to touch. Now, I know our society, the pendulum always swings so far to the other side. It used to be where if you hug someone, there was nothing there except you just were hugging someone. Now it's like, oh, don't hug me. You know, I'm triggered by your hugging. You know, but it's a respect thing, so I get that. You know, we should respect people's boundaries and all kind of things. But Jesus touched people. If Jesus is God with skin on, and we are, in essence, that too. We're not God with skin on, but we're Jesus to the world. Then shouldn't we touch people? Chapter 9, verse 27, what just happened before he goes out to these two blind men, he just raised a girl from the dead. I don't know about you, but like if I just raised a girl from the dead, I'd want to just like dwell in that for a while. Let's pass an offering plate, you know. Uh, Let's have a service. You know what I mean? Jesus is like, "Mm, I got to go. There's someone else. So he starts, verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. This is the first time in the gospel accounts that Jesus is referred to as the son of David. So why are they calling him the son of David? They're confessing Jesus as the Messiah. How do we know this? Because Matthew chapter 1 starts out with the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of who? David. Isn't it amazing that these physically blind people saw better than the spiritually blind people? Isn't that always the case? They were blind physically, but they had 20-20 vision of who Jesus is. So he goes on in Matthew 9, 28, says, When he entered the house, the blind men came up to Jesus, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Now let me ask you a question. Jesus asked you that same question. Do you believe that God is able to do anything? Because I do too. They say, Yes, Lord, we believe that. The cure for any problem is belief. Any problem. Believe God. Believe what he says. And so these blind men confess Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And now 
They're showing their faith in the Messiah. And I hear people say, you know, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And then they're like, but I have this problem. I go, well, do you trust God with that problem? No, he doesn't care about that. Are you kidding me? You just confessed him as your Lord and Savior. and He doesn't care about that problem. These blind men show us a lot. And in verse 29, he says, Then Jesus touched their eyes. So there's that touch that I'm talking about, saying it shall be done to you according to your faith. Or he's saying, since you believe, your request is granted. Because it all starts with belief. One of the reasons the workers aren't working in the field is because they're afraid to touch people's lives. You know, what would that person think of me? But Jesus wasn't afraid to touch people's lives, and neither should we. And sometimes Jesus even touched diseased people. These are other times Jesus touched, just some of them, not all of them. Remember, he touched a leper. Wouldn't he be afraid of getting leprosy? And then he touched Peter's mother-in-law, who had a fever. He could get sick. He's in human flesh. Blind people, many times. He touched and ministered to babies and children. We have that too. We want to minister to babies and children. Even when Peter cut off the high priest's ear in the garden, Jesus touched his ear. So he even touched his enemy. If you want to experience a harvest in your life, you have to be willing to go into the field, which is the world, and touch people with the grace of God. So we go on and it says, And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him. And I love how Eric did that pause. because it's. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. Now why is this? One of the reasons, I believe, is that Jesus didn't want to be falsely claimed as just a miracle worker, right? Because many people go, show us a sign. Show us a miracle. They were fascinated with the miracles, not with the person. So that's one of the reasons. But isn't it true that if your life is touched by Jesus, you can't help but tell people? So when I asked you earlier, who's the last person that you let God use you to save? It starts with telling them about Jesus and what he did for you and what he's done for you. Because hasn't he touched your life? Some people in here got saved a long time ago. And then it becomes this distant memory, you know, like the Barbara Streisand song. Memories. Light the corners of my mind. I remember Jesus. He, was, he saved me. Well, don't you remember him now? He's saving you now. So this is the urgency of the harvest that Jesus is saying. I want to make sure that you understand this very important caveat about this entire message. And it's this. You will never do out there what you're not doing in here. You're never going to touch people's lives out there if you're not touching people's lives in here. You're never going to share your testimony out there if you're not sharing it in here. You're never going to let God use you to be an instrument of His grace if you're not letting Him use you as an instrument of His grace in the church. Because the church is the laboratory. It's the practice field. You know how when you're on a team... And you go practice on the practice field, but it's all ready to get on the game field. 
But if you're not practicing in the church, what makes you think you're going to be ready out there? Each person, each Christian should be sharing their testimony, should be greeting one another, encouraging one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, sharing with one another. And when you come to church, you shouldn't go, oh, I'm just coming to a place. You're coming to a family that needs your love, that needs your touch. If you're willing to do that, then I'll promise you this. You'll be willing to do it out there, right? I mean, you remember science class? To me, the best part about science class was the laboratory, I hated chemistry, but I like, you know, developing chemicals, you know, and going, oh, is that going to blow up? You know, oh, no, I'm sorry. But you try it out in the laboratory. This is the laboratory. That's one of the most important things about the church. We rehearse our life. We rehearse our faith. When we get here early in the morning, we rehearse the music. Why do we do that? So that we don't stuck. That's one reason. But the other reason, which is more important, is that the songs and the message comes into our heart. I'm telling you this. If you're not rehearsing during the week, you're not going to get enough rehearsal. I don't know how people see the church sometimes. But I'm telling you this. You should be praying all week to worship God. And you should be worshiping all week. It should be a daily rehearsal. You should get the word in your heart, like the music. A harvest ain't going to happen out there if you're not practicing in here. Secondly, a harvest requires workers who aren't afraid to claim. Claim, now what I might mean by that. There's a false gospel called the name it and claim it gospel. And that's when people name things and claim things, but for vanity for their purpose, not necessarily for God's purpose and glory. But there's also a name and claim it with regards to souls. If we're in the business of harvesting souls, shouldn't we claim them for the Lord Jesus? Now, let me tell you this. The Bible says that before the foundation of the world, you were chosen in him. Before he created the world, you were chosen. Now, you had to respond to his choice. What if that person next to you in the grocery store is a chosen one, and you're the one that gets to save them? What if that person sitting you next to work or at school is a chosen one, and you get to be the one to see the light bulb come on? I think we have to remember that this has to all be about Jesus. And Jesus goes out in verse 32. He goes, now he remember, he raised the dead girl. He touched the blind man. Eyes are open. And now he goes out and there's a demon-possessed man brought to him. Now the Messiah, the scripture says the Messiah would come with power. The blind would see, the lame would walk, the mute would speak. And Jesus said, the reason that I am saying that the kingdom of God is near because you can see with your very eyes that I am calling out and exercising out demons from people because there's a demonic kingdom that's fighting and that's an adversary to God's kingdom. But notice here, what does it say? They were going out, a mute demon-possessed man, so he couldn't talk, was brought to him. 
How did he get to Jesus? Someone brought him. So here, I have an article that just came out a few years ago. It's the power of the invite. And it starts out by saying, whatever happened to the strategy of simply inviting a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor to church? According to our research, an invitation to church is still an effective way to reach the lost. A few years ago, Lifeway Research conducted a survey of 15,000 adults for the North American Mission Board to try to determine which of 13 approaches is the best received when a church wants to be heard. The research shows us that the best received means of seeing new people walk into one's church is a personal invitation. 67% of Americans say that a personal invitation from a family member would be very or somewhat effective in getting them to church. 63% of Americans say that a personal invitation from a friend or a neighbor would be very or something. That's pretty high, I would say. I always thought it was lower. But what's that saying? There's not that we don't have enough workers. The workers aren't inviting people to come to see what God is all about. You know, our church, we've tried all things, and there's different ways of reaching people. But what I've seen and what I've heard in the history of our church is, how did you find out about us? Someone told me. That's how it happens. It's the power of the invite. In 1997, it was Christmas Eve, and we were living in the Woodlands, Texas, and I was getting ready for the three or four services we had that day. And in the morning, I woke up, and the Lord, I felt like he impressed upon my heart. I want you to share the gospel with Emmett. Now, if you don't know Emmett, I didn't think Emmett liked me. Emmett is my father-in-law. I was long-haired musician, married his beautiful daughter, He was like a very conservative carpenter union pension guy. So when I feel that impression, the first thing I say to the Lord is, no, you do it. (laughs) But then after he convicts me and he said, I am doing it. I want to use you to do it. I'm like, what do I have in common with him? So then I put another fleece out. I say, okay, Lord. If you want me to do this, you've got to empty out the house because there's so many people in here right now and there's never going to happen. Next thing I know, everyone leaves and it's me and Emmett. <laughs> and he's out in the living room watching TV and I'm in my office and I'm praying, Lord, please come, Jesus. <laughs> I said, how am I going to do this? So I go, I have an idea. So back then, you know, 1997, how do you pull up a website? It was like... You know, I pull up our retirement fund page and I go, okay, he's in the retirement fund. So I'll just ask him a question about it. So I go, Emmett, I have a question about a retirement fund. Oh, okay. So he walks in, sits next to me. Blah, 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 blah. We ask. I go, Emmett, do you think there's anything more important than money? I never thought about that. I go, well, Jesus saved my life. And I thought it was all about music. And, you know, one day we're going to die. We're going to stand before the Lord. God's going to ask, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? So I share the gospel with him, and I'm thinking, he's not getting it. I said, Emmett, do you want to pray to receive Christ? Sure. (laughs) What? (laughs) So he prays to receive Christ. And the first thing he says, thank you very much. Nobody asked me before. 
There's a survey that says it takes seven touches to someone to get saved. I could have been the seventh one. The point is this. If you don't ask, they don't know. Right? goes on, verse 33. It says, After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So who cast out the demon? Jesus, right? Who lives inside of us? Jesus. So if Jesus lives inside of us, the very one who cast out demons, don't you think that by his power, demons can be cast out today? I still believe that demons exist. There's basically demons are Satan's army. There's some people who are actually possessed, some people that are oppressed. Uh, There's a darkness, a heaviness in our world today. And a lot of that is by the spiritual force of darkness and evil. And we need to claim those people and call out the evil in the name of Jesus so that they're saved. And that's not going to happen unless we're doing it. Now, there are times where I've read just the other day, there's a huge work of the Holy Spirit in Iran and different places where people are having dreams and seeing Jesus. That's awesome because the gospel isn't infiltrating as much there. If you go knock on someone's door, odds are, and you say, hey man, I just want to tell you Jesus loves you, odds are they're not going to shoot you in the head. Odds are. We're not living in a place where that's going to probably happen. So we got to do this. But here's the thing. Demons don't give up easy. So we're going to have an opposition. Even Jesus did so in verse 34. But the Pharisees were saying, he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Okay, there's so many things going on there. But one thing is these religious people were spiritually dead. Not only dead, they were oppositional to God. That's why Jesus said, when this happened in Luke, he says, you know, if you blaspheme me, the Son of Man, you can be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit because you're actually blaspheming God himself, that's the unforgivable sin. Now, does that mean that if someone blasphemes God that there's never a chance? No. How many times do people do that and they get saved? right? But at some point, the heart gets so hard that God doesn't even break through. So there is opposition. But what's a little opposition? I mean, Jesus died on a cross. So sometimes the hardest people are the most religious people. I remember when I came to Christ, I came out of the Catholic church, and I was shunned by a lot of people. What do you mean you want to get baptized you were baptized as a baby. I go, yeah, but I wasn't believing at that point. I'm a believer now. How could you do that? You're leaving the church of your youth. What they're saying is you're leaving the traditions for the truth. Traditions are good, but traditions should never supersede the authority of the truth of God's word. We need to claim people's souls. Next, a harvest requires workers aren't afraid to teach the Bible. Jesus taught a lot. It says Jesus was going through all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. He spent a lot of time teaching. So the local church is where the teaching of God's word should happen. God's people need to be taught. Remember Proverbs 29, 18, which is the key verse for this sermon series. Where there's no vision, the people perish. It could literally read this way. Where there's no divine revelation, 
the people run wild. They're out of control. Where there's no teaching of God's word, people are out of control. Chaos. I want to read one thing here that is happening currently with a major denomination of 13 million people. It is the United Methodist Church, which is splitting over LGBTQ rights. It says leaders from the United Methodist Church reportedly announced a tentative plan Friday to split the church over differences on same-sex marriage. So this is a recent event and the inclusion of gay clergy. There are roughly 13 million church members around the world, and about half of them are in the United States, according to the Times. The division, which has been brewing for years, came to an impasse last May when delegates in St. Louis voted 438 to 384 to ban gay marriage and the inclusion of gay clergy. That's a close vote. Here's the saddest part of all. A majority of the U.S.-based churches opposed the traditional plan, but were outvoted by conservatives in Africa and the Philippines. Did you get that? A majority of U.S.-based churches opposed the traditional plan, the Bible, but were outvoted by conservatives in Africa and the Philippines. The Word of God is as true today as it was yesterday. And it'll be true tomorrow. And if we're not teaching the truth, people run wild, out of control. The next thing, a harvest requires workers who aren't afraid to preach the gospel. So teaching and preaching are somewhat different. Jesus taught mostly in the synagogue, although he taught on the mountainside and the Sermon on the Mount. But his preaching was always outside, in the harvest field. What's the difference? Teaching would be for the edification of the church in a sense where we want you to understand what the Bible says. Preaching is more proclaiming what the Bible says in the hopes of a response of an acceptance of Christ. So Jesus taught, and then in the next part it says, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Whose kingdom is this? Yeah, or Jesus. And you can say Jesus to any question and it would be right. But it's God's kingdom. So if there's a God's kingdom, who's part of God's kingdom? The ones who have faith in his son, Jesus Christ, right? So if he's the king, then we need to be subject to him. And that means in all parts of our lives. There is no debate. So what God says goes, right? So he said to them, in Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to them, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. Who's supposed to preach the gospel? Just me? No. (laughs) Everyone. You. How does a church grow? The gospel is preached through you. You have a sphere of influence that I don't have. You have a sphere in the world. I'm not involved in that with you, per se. That's your thing. Those are your people that you have there. So that's what we need to do. And then a harvest requires workers who aren't afraid to heal. Healing people in the name of Jesus. Have you ever experienced healing in the name of Jesus? Have you ever seen people or marriages healed in the name of Jesus? Now the greatest healing is spiritual healing through salvation. By receiving the Holy Spirit. I've seen people healed physically. I've seen 
Marriage is restored. It's because Jesus goes into the harvest field and it says he healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. True faith is stepping out into scary situations because you're never going to experience the power of God if you're just always trying to be comfortable. That's not how it happens. I don't know exactly how many people I have had the incredible privilege of maybe helping them see the truth or come to faith in Christ or be healed. I will probably never know all that, but I will know one day as I stand before the Lord and what I see in the dim mirror, I will see in total light of how God used me. And isn't that the most important thing? I mean, we're only here for a short time. I went to two memorial services, one on Friday and one on Saturday. Apparently, they were both believers. That's the most important thing. But one guy was 48, pancreatic cancer. He got diagnosed on December 1 and passed away on December 31. 48. We don't know how long we're here on this earth. I don't know about you, but I take for granted every breath. I wake up in the morning and I'm alive. But what am I supposed to do? Why am I here? It's to make a difference. And if I'm not willing to do it in here, I'm not going to do it out there. We need to be healers of people's lives. And then a harvest requires workers who aren't afraid to lead. Jesus is the good shepherd. Shepherds lead. In verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. God is a compassionate God. And Jesus looked out and he noticed the people. That's what you have to do first. You got to notice them. Then you got to have compassion. And compassion is not just feeling sorry. It's actually doing something for them. Why did Jesus feel this way? Because they were harassed or bullied and helpless. And Jesus refers to us as little lambs, sheep. He saw these lost, vulnerable people. And he felt compassion for them. And he actually felt so much compassion, he died for us on a cross. But here's the question. Did Jesus do his ministry alone? No. And neither am I supposed to. Neither are you. Here's the way I see it. There's the good shepherd, the head shepherd, who's Jesus over the entire church. And then he appoints and he assigns under shepherds and local churches. And the way I see it is the way Jesus would. So he's using me in a certain way to shepherd his church. But then I am to count on you to be my under shepherds. Because if that doesn't happen, the church won't grow and be healthy. Everybody's a shepherd to some sense and should be shepherding in your home and your family and your workplace. Now let's end with finding yourself in the story. Will you be sent? They said to the disciples, the harvest is plenty, the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out the workers into his harvest field. Now guess what? I've always prayed, Lord, the harvest is plenty, the workers are few. Please, Lord, I ask, because you're the Lord of the harvest, send out the workers into the harvest field. And guess how he answers? You. You are the answer to my prayers. Right? I mean, it's no coincidence. So first, you're authorized by God to be a worker in the harvest field. You have to understand that. 
Jesus gave his 12 disciples authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every kind of disease. You are appointed by God. It's your assignment to do this. God gave you an assignment to prepare the way for the Lord by sharing your testimony about him and reaching people with the touch of God. And then third, you're sent by God. And guess what? How are you sent? Like a lamb among wolves. See, now the little thing about the harvest. The harvest is not just the harvest field for the souls. Jesus is talking about a harvest of eschatological framework. In other words, eschatology means the study of last things. So at the end of time, God knows, Jesus will come back and he'll set up his kingdom, his messianic kingdom, which is a big harvest. But we don't know when that is. That could be today. It could be tomorrow. Lost people need to hear about Jesus. That's why I started this church and why I planned this church. I want to sing a song to end today that I wrote many, many years ago. I don't think I've sung it enough. Out of the gate and into the street So many people dying to eat Connect them to Jesus Show them the way Through mercy and kindness Compassion and grace Open the gate Open the gate Open the gate I am the gate Enter in And all will be saved Go To lie down and rest in my arms. Bring me the lost so they can be found. Open the gate and into the streets. So many people die into me. Jesus, show them the way through mercy and kindness, compassion and grace. The thief comes to kill and destroy. I came to give life. No one can take that away. And rest in my arms Since you once were lost And now you are found You are my treasure possession Couldn't bear to see you die alone So I stepped out of the gate into the streets 
so many people they're looking at me I carried your cross to Calvary I died for the people I stepped out of the gate and into the streets so many people they're looking at me I carried my cross to Calvary I died for the people to open the gate open the gate Open the gate. Open the gate. Would you be a part of opening the gate with us? Because this is the year of the gate. I'm going to talk more about that next week. But make sure you open the gate of your heart if you are not haven't done that yet. So bow your head, and I want to lead us in a prayer. If you've never opened the gate, Jesus says, Here I am, I stand at the gate or the door of your heart. And if anyone opens up, I will come in. If that's you today, you just say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I open the gate of my heart. And I want you to come in and live inside of me. I believe in you, and I believe that you died for my sins on the cross, and I believe that you rose from the dead. And I want you to use me for your glory. It's no longer about me. It's always about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you join us for a Sunday service. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegatecbc.com. Make me-